Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Who knows what 2017 holds for cinema? But if it fulfills the promise shown with the releases on its very first day, then we're in for an absolute cracker. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to my weekly podcast, Soundtracking. If you're new to the show, the premise is simple. I speak to filmmakers about the music in their work with relevant examples of the compositions we discuss weaved into the conversation. In this instance, my guest is Juan Antonio Bayona, or JA for short. Since 2007, the Spanish director has made three critically acclaimed movies, all of which have had in very different ways, children at the centre of the narrative. First came his superior horror flick, The Orphanage, followed by The Impossible, which is about a family caught up in the 2004 tsunami and was inspired by true events. Now he brings us A Monster Calls, based on the award-winning fantasy novel by Patrick Ness. It tells a story of a boy who comes to terms with the terminal illness of his mother with the help of a humanoid tree. It stars Sigourney Weaver, Felicity Jones, Toby Kebble, Lewis McDougall and Liam Neeson and is an incredibly powerful cinematic experience. As with all J.E.'s films, A Monster Calls is scored by Fernando Velasquez, while his foray into television with Penny Dreadful saw him collaborate with Polish composer Abel Korzanowski. But it's with Fernando's work that we begin, and his stripped-back soundscape for this latest picture. Mr. Biona, it's an absolute pleasure to, to chat to you. I'm very much a fan of your films. They tap into emotions that not enough films do for me, so it's a pleasure to chat to you. Can we start with A Monster Calls? I haven't sobbed in a cinema <laughs> quite like that ever. Um, but you very cleverly weave the music in quite specifically with this film. It's almost quite minimal in a way, and silence seems as important to you in this film as soundscape does. Would you agree? Yeah. First of all, thank you for your words. <laughs> I think that the story that Patrick Ness wrote has so many different subject matters, and some of them were quite delicate. Uh, it was difficult to find the tone of the film, and, and the music had to do a lot in finding the tone, and be very careful in not adding more than what is already in the story. So we got to the moment talking and working with Fernando Velázquez that music had to be smaller than The Impossible. This is some, something that it came from the fact that The Impossible takes place in 72 hours and this one takes place in months. So the, the motion is completely different when, when you talk 
in such a different period of, of such a different period of time. Mm. Uh, somehow in the impossible it was more it was bigger. We you know the, the way people show their emotions in that situation was overwhelming, you know. And in this case the emotion is all the time hidden, the same way Connor hides the truth. What is Connor listening to on his headphones? Anything or nothing? I mean, in my head, sometimes I think it's just he's not listening to anything. It's just his way of being in his own head. And then other times I'm like, maybe he... I don't know, tell me. Well, there's a lot of uh, leaving gaps in the story so so the audience can have their own interpretation of the yeah. story. And at the same time, this is why it's quite tricky to do the film. At the same time, you want to make the whole thing accessible. So it's it's always tricky to find the balance between something accessible and mysterious. It's funny what you're asking me because there is some music in the headphones uh, because we had a song for the film and we, we struggled to put the song in the film and, and finally we couldn't really and we put the song in the credits. And he was supposed to be listening to that song, but the truth is that we put the song so... Uh, uh, so loud no, yeah. that, that you cannot even hear the song in that, that scene. Is this the Keen song? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I want to hand you my heart and let you carry the load Nobody tells you anything you need to know I need a friend but a friend is so hard to find I need an answer but I'm always one step behind Guess it takes time Talk about that for a second because it's beautiful. I know you've got history with the band and, and working with them and being a fan of them. Did you approach them and specifically ask them to create something? Yeah, I thought that the story is so dramatic that I needed something that will remind us that Connor is a kid. That Connor, uh, apart from all what he's going through in the story, he was a kid. So I thought that we needed a moment of light. Ultimately, we had that moment in the film because you can see a montage where he stays alone at his grandmother's house and he starts to draw. And it's kind of like a beautiful moment where you can see that he really is a kid. But as much as we struggled in finding the song, we realized that there was no space for the song in the in the film, so you can hear the song, which is 
is a beautiful song in the title credits. What did you ask of them? I wanted a song that somehow felt nostalgic and at the same time bring light to the story. There, there was a beautiful song that I love from them called uh, Sober in Light Cafe and I wanted something like that in that vein. I'm going back to a time when we own this town Fernando, when you, you know, you've worked with him over a number of films, so there's a relationship there and I guess a, a trust and almost a kind of sixth sense in a way. But with this film in particular, what, at what point is he part of the process? Is he there whilst you're making the film, before you're making the film? At what point do you, do you bring him in to think about music? I think because uh, it's a very collaborative uh, effort every time we do a film together, Fernando and I, not just Fernando, uh, Bernat uh, Villaplana, one of the editors, Yeah, he's also a musician, so he, he brings a lot of feedback in the process. And it was quite tricky to find the right tone for this film, not talking only about the score, but finding the tone and the right architecture of the story. So we start to work with Fernando very early on. Somehow the process always starts with finding the right melody, and for me that's kind of important because the melody somehow tells you about the story in a way that you cannot express with words, yeah. uh, and makes it very different. I give a lot of briefing to Fernando about what is the story and what is the tone and what is the meaning of the story to me and what are the emotions we're playing with. And then we start to find the melody. And, and there is a moment that I, I said, this is the right one. And from there, we start to, to work on the score.
Is it easy to decide on when silence is important as well, kind of on the flip side of that? Is that an easy thing to know when that's as important as a piece of score being there? I think the, the biggest challenge in this film was to find where to play music, where to put music and where not to mm. use music. And I think that because we, we were not adding anything more to what was already in the story of the performance, we came to this moment that the most effective or the most um, emotional moments in the story are, are in full silence and you, you cannot hear a, a single note of music which makes the music when it shows up much more effective it almost like sucks your breath out of you when you kind of yeah. get that instant kind of we had this idea of death being emptiness in the story and there is a moment when finally you have the moment of death that the, the whole screen is black there's not even a single sound in the film. And I think that was very impressive because there's not many chances nowadays to do a moment where half of the screen is black and you cannot hear uh, not even a single moment of an atmosphere, not a single sound. Yeah. But then I, I remember that when we did the last scene that it had to be music because the, the music brings a, a different concept of what you're seeing. There's a, a relief, there's a moment of peace yeah. uh, at the end. And, and that had to be added with the with the, the music. Somehow the music brings a different meaning to what you're seeing uh, and that's when music is very effective. Can I go back to the orphanage and music because you know I have that wondrous thing of re reminding myself of these wonderful scores that have been part of your films and the orphanage you know I remember seeing that film for the first time and what a film can you talk a little bit about the music in the orphanage and how that was put I, together I, I think there was an idea of childhood there was this idea of beauty related to childhood that I think we stole from I remember to Kill a Mockingbird Elmer Bernstein's score and that, and that was taken from that film and it's funny because you can see that the poster for To Kill a Mockingbird in the last scene of this film and somehow there's lots of references to
the other reference I will use would be um, George Delerue and his score for Our Mother's House. Uh, I think it's another excellent film uh, about childhood. And I think that there's this idea of childhood being this kind of like desert island, you know, like, like this paradise, lost paradise, you know. But the score is this beautiful thing that kind of has these sharp shifts in, in tone from a note to note in a way that it kind of almost like just drops you off a cliff. It's lovely hearing your reference points as well in terms of the things that influenced you because is it Barcelona that you were born and grew up in? And, yeah. and in terms of what films inspired you and you grew up watching and the moments that you remember those scores coming through, I mean, you mentioned a couple there. Are there any others that really stood out for you of being that moment that you recognised and appreciated how important the music is with cinema? I think that there are films in particular and then there are directors. I think what I was more inspired is to discover a generation of filmmakers that took childhood very seriously. And I'm talking about Jack Layton, for example. You can have Our Mother's House, but you can also talk about The Innocents, and both are very interesting films about childhood. Innocence, produced and directed by Jack Clayton, the man who directed Room at the Top, turned into fearful reality by the magnificent performance of Miss Deborah Carr. <laughs> Do they ever return to possess the living? And when did you first see and hear of such things? Why, I made them up. 
Shall I tell you who taught them to you? I won't ever again, I promise. Shall I tell you who taught you? The things you've done, the things you've said? Shall I tell you his name? <laughs> Perhaps the most controversial concept in human relationships ever presented on the screen. With one of the world's great stars, from the man who directed Room at the Top, a new and adult motion picture experience. This is Steven Spielberg, of course, and then there is Francois Truffaut, of course, and that is where you will find the reference to Georges Delery. I think what I was more attracted to was portraying childhood in a, such a meaningful way. Taking kids seriously. <laughs> Taking kids seriously, which is actually what Patrick Ness did in his book. And allowing children that honesty of dealing with horrendous situations in a true and honest way. That's what I love about the relationship between Connor and the monster, you know, when he says, speak your truth. I think somehow these horrendous situations trigger the moment of telling the truth. It's all about restraining the truth. The moment you finally say the truth, it becomes cathartic. How does the story begin? With a boy. Too old to be a kid. You're coming to live with me. Don't touch anything. Too young to be a man. I no longer see you. <laughs> what does he do? also in the impossible you know it's these characters that they discover that there's no survival in lying so they are forced to tell the truth and truth becomes something very cathartic to them and and this, and this is actually the subject matter of Patrick Ness book your cast in this film as well I have to say are just perfection Lewis is so great I mean and anybody would really want to have Sigourney Weaver as their grandma you're gonna win in any situation if you have Sigourney Weaver as your grandma Toby is the father and Felicity, what a beautiful yeah. performance. You mentioned Toby because uh, I think he had the most complicated character because 
it had to be this father, this character so likable, but what he's doing at the end is so unlikable. So every character deals with a contradiction. You have Sigourney, she's playing like this evil witch for Connor, but at the same time she's playing the mother for Felicity. Yeah. So every character was kind of tricky. The monster again is uh, is a monster, but at the same time is the best friend or, or the yeah. solution for Connor. So every character had this contradiction that makes makes them very interesting. I have come to get you, Connor O'Malley. Why don't you run, Connor O'Malley? Why don't you run for your mother? visit you again on further nights in Connor O'Malley, and I will shake your walls until you wake, and then I will tell you three stories. You're going to tell me stories? I am. I will tell you three stories, and when I finish my stories, you will tell me a fourth. I don't know anything about stories. You will tell me a fourth, and it will be the truth. What are you talking about? This truth that you hide, the truth you dream. You will tell me your nightmare. No. Yes, that will be your truth. I love the development of those characters as the film goes through. And I imagine Toby being a brilliant help to Lewis. You know, I remember watching Toby in Dead Man's Shoes and just being completely blown away by that performance. Yeah, though I didn't want them to spend much time together because when you start with uh, to work with an actor to prepare a character, it's very important the way you design the work you do before the, the shooting. You need to establish a relationship between the characters. Yeah. So, for example, with Felicity and Louis, we spend a lot of time together before we shoot the film. Apart from rehearsals, we did visits to, I remember, an amusement park, to the movies, to the swimming pools. So they spend a lot of time together because we had to create that bond. But with Louis and Toby, and I, didn't want to, I didn't want them to have a... <laughs> a no relation contact. at all I didn't want them to have contact so we didn't do rehearsals and I wanted to keep that sense of awkwardness the first time they were together in front of the screen at the end it was kind of impossible because <laughs> yeah. Toby's such a nice guy yeah. that they came along very well yeah. but basically the first time you see them in front of the camera it was one of the first moments they, they were in front of the camera wow. and you somehow as a director are able to capture that with your camera and that is great How did you work that then with relation to Lewis's character Connor and the monster? Well, that's a very interesting question. We did the, the whole motion capture that was two weeks of shooting motion capture with Liam Neeson. Uh, that was uh, right before we started principal photography. So before starting to work with Lewis uh, and the real shooting, we spent two weeks with Liam. So Liam playing the monster, he had someone in front of him. So he was always to play always in front of Louis and Louis had that experience that he bring with himself to the set. the impossible and that main theme for that film is is so beautiful I could listen to it on repeat where did you start with the music for the impossible because you mentioned earlier about it had to be big it had to yeah. be overpowered in a, in a way in terms of the subject matter somehow it was uh, it had to be a main theme that somehow overwhelms the characters 
So it, it had to be epic in a way that you can feel how big was the whole situation. And it had to deal a lot with uh, frustration and sacrifice. For me, that, that main theme was uh, the way of uh, showing how the characters were overwhelmed by the situation and frustrated. It's funny when you, we talk about fantasy and reality in the Monster Calls because I, I see a lot of that also in The Impossible, which is a story based upon a real story. But I think it also talks about fantasy in terms of this family living a fantasy world. They, they are Westerners uh, from a Western country going to Thailand and discovering what life is about and discovering what really life is about and how privileged they are. And when they need to go back and go back to their fantasy world, they don't feel the same anymore. And they can feel how privilege deals a lot also with suffering. So we had to deal that level of frustration, of level of discovering how uncertain could be life. I wanted to ask you as well about the difference between working in TV and film because Penny Dreadfully did a couple of episodes of that and working with Abel. Did you do the first two episodes yep. of that? So you went in and you started the ball rolling, so to speak, and, and I guess you were very much part of creating that soundscape that then went on for the rest of that series. Was, was it a different approach? Not really, because I never thought about Penny Dreadful as a TV show. For me, it was like doing another film, so the way we shot the story, the way we planned the story was exactly the same if that would have been a, a film. And it's funny that the actors, they realized, they came to me and said, this is not like shooting a, a TV show. And I didn't know what was the meaning, what, what, they, what did they mean saying that. But the truth is that I never thought about that as a TV show. And the score was uh, exactly the same.
funny that we had a we had a different composer for the show, and you know Eva Green, she's a music um, film lover too. Oh wow! Okay. So so we we did a lot of rehearsals listening to music because I, I normally should play music all the time. Do you? Yeah. So I was I was playing a lot of uh, Abel music doing rehearsal with her and I discovered that she was a f- big fan of Abel too and she loved Abel too. So so the moment finally with the, the other composer who, who was supposed to be the one working at Penny Werfel say no. It was obvious <laughs> that it had to be Abel because we were playing all these things with his music. So I suggested the producer, why don't we call this guy that it seems that it uh, has the right tone for the show and it worked really well. And, and he spent the three seasons doing, doing the scoring amazingly. That's great. I just heard um, his score for Nocturnal Animals as well oh, is, is absolutely amazing. play on set then sometimes it's difficult uh, because there's something beautiful about uh, film music is that when film music can explain things that you cannot express with words so this is when you use music so a lot of uh, of times you can find yourself in the set and you just play your music and the actors they know what you mean not only the actors but the whole crew the music helps them to focus in what's in front of the camera and it creates such a special environment that it's helpful not just for the actors, but for everyone. So I, I like to do it. The other day I was reading about Charlie Chaplin playing music with a live orchestra during the shooting. So it's not something I invented, but it's something very useful in order to put everyone, not just the actors, in the mood of what you're doing. How wonderful would that be, just to have a, an orchestra in the corner, kind of go, OK, off you go. Oh, my God, that would be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's the dream. Uh, yeah, well, it was a small orchestra, like three, four music. No, no, no. An orchestra. Still, that's incredible. I can imagine, but no, I can imagine why he did it. You're about to um, inherit one of the most popular theme tunes as well on on a project that you're working on. If I'm right in thinking, you're doing the next Jurassic Park uh-huh. film, John Williams. Yeah. It doesn't get more epic and huge and wonderful and glorious than the Jurassic Park theme tune. Do you have to have it there? Does it have to be part of it? I mean, do you want it part of it? One thing that I love about the Jurassic movies is that there is music all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's so difficult nowadays to find a movie that you can play music all the time. Yeah. You know, it's it's very specific. I mean, there's no many. It's the Star Wars, Jurassic, I mean, some of the superhero movies maybe, but it's kind of like old-fashioned to have music playing all the time. But these kind of movies, they, they accept that. it's great and, and I think that not only John Williams but Michael Giacchino did an amazing work in, in Jurassic World and I'm just so excited to be part of it. Brilliant. Well listen, congratulations on this and I can't wait to talk to you in the future again about your, your films but that was just wonderful. Thank you very much. Great for your time. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much. You so Thank much. you.
main theme to Jurassic Park as composed by John Williams, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with J.A. Bayona. A huge thanks to J.A. for taking the time to talk to us. A Monster Calls is on general release around the world now and is a wonderful piece of work. Now you can find the tracks we played during the conversation in the order they appear by heading to edithbowman.com where you can also catch up with all of our previous episodes from Ben Wheatley to Andrea Arnold, Derek Cianfrance to Richard Linklater. You should find something to suit your tastes. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We're at Soundtracking UK. And do subscribe to and rate the show on iTunes if you get a moment. Next up is screenwriter and director John McDonough, whose latest black comedy, War on Everyone, has had critics purring. I look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.